So last week, we opened up a, a new sermon series that is focusing our hearts and our minds and our lives on the words that God speaks in the Ten Commandments. And we talked about this idea of the Ten Commandments being the, the, the raw ingredients that it would take to create a space on the face of the earth where life would be lived as God always intended. And we called that physical space God's good neighborhood. Now, I know that's a different way of thinking of the Ten Commandments. I know that, that it took us most of last week to kind of think through what does it mean to live, to move into God's good neighborhood. And what we're really trying to get at there is this isn't something that God just wants for us personally in our hearts. That God wants not only our hearts, but God wants us to reach out to our neighbors, to reach out to the people around us with the goodness that he wants for each one of us. That it's never just me and God. It's never just me and Jesus. It's never just me and the Spirit. It's us. And what does it mean to be people who are trying to create that place that all of us can live together? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at the first two of those Ten Commandments. And so if you've got your Bibles open up, Again, to Exodus chapter 20, be starting in verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I've been reading these six verses over and over this week, and I have been wrestling with what is going on here? What kind of message God is speaking here? And it's not because it's difficult to understand. For me, it's more that it's difficult for us immediately, at least, to relate to. That when we start thinking about what it means to not practice idolatry, to not bow down before some golden image in some ancient temple with with some, some priest of a different religion. I, I think we, we imagine all those things. We think about it real quickly. And we assume, well, I'm not doing any of that. So these first two commandments, I've, I've got those covered. Let's move on to the others. And I get it. Because if you keep reading Exodus. And you, you get to Exodus 32. Which really in the span of the story isn't that far away. Immediately we find the Israelites breaking the first and second commandment by creating a golden calf. And, and i got to tell you, when I, I see that story unfold in my imagination, or when I read about that story, and I, I watch God's people who have been delivered by God from slavery, they've, they've gone through the waters on dry land, now they're at the foot of the mountain of the Lord, they've seen smoke and fire and, and all of these amazing things, and I think, how in the world are they convincing themselves that a metal baby cow did all that? And you think, how, how, do, they, how do they actually believe what they're saying and doing? 
I've never done something like that. I've never had a thought like that. I, I would never be deceived that easily, and I certainly wouldn't deceive myself that easily. And so I think about, you shall have no other gods before me, or another way to translate that is, you shall have no other gods than me. And don't make for yourself an image that you would attribute my power and my presence in your life, that you give all of that credit to something other than me. And then you've got these words that are really uncomfortable, where God talks about punishment lasting for, for generations, three and four generations, but then you've got this other statement of love, that God's love lasts longer than God's anger, God's punishment. I think we've got to wrestle with, okay, are the first and second commandments, are they simply something that used to happen a long time ago with, with statues and priests and temples and it has nothing to do with us? Or do we need to wrestle with what was it like for the Israelites before we decide whether or not we're anything like them? So for a moment, I, I want you to imagine what it was like for an Israelite growing up in the Old Testament era... What, what was it like for them when it came to religion, when it came to faith, when it came to their, their daily existence? The first thing you've got to know is that, that they were used to seeing, and all the other nations around them, the public worship, the, the pursuit of public worship of all kinds of different gods. All kinds of different deities and heavenly powers that, that different nations and different tribes and different people believed were responsible for how life was and more than that, responsible for how life might be. So you've got all these temples, you've got all these priests from competing religions that are all telling you that if you'll just say the right words and if you'll just worship in the right ways and if you'll go to the right sacred places, then you've got the best shot at having a good harvest and not starving. Of having your flocks and your herds multiply so that you have not only enough to feed your family but maybe to feed others as well. Maybe sell flocks and herds and be able to, to get past just surviving hand to mouth. Maybe, maybe you want healthy, safe children, so you go to a different God to pray and to worship. Or maybe you want a business that you're just starting to be profitable. Maybe you're getting ready to fight a war and you want that military campaign to be not only successful, but to protect all the soldiers who are going out to fight that battle. The list goes on and on, and there were all kinds of different gods to cover all of these different spiritual bases. And, and the reality is it wasn't just as complicated as trying to keep all the gods straight. You had to be really careful about worshiping any one of those gods because they were all jealous or that's what you'd be told and so if you you worshiped one god because you were hoping for a good harvest you better be careful that the god of war wasn't watching because there was going to be retaliation Something bad might happen to you simply because you picked the wrong God or you didn't keep enough of the gods happy all at once. Now, I know this all sounds complicated and, and overwhelming, but it wasn't even close to as chaotic as, and overwhelming as their world felt. I mean, they really were. Most of the Israelites, you get the sense, were running scared most of the time. I mean, scared to death of not having enough. 
not being able to take care of and protect the people that they loved most dearly. They were, they were terrified of weather events and other things that might destroy everything they'd worked hard to grow in a season. And if there was a famine or if there was a flood, what were they going to do? Who was going to, to watch over them? Who was going to provide for them? What about all of the, the armies, all the, the warring factions and tribes that were all around them? At any moment, you could look up over the horizon and see dust starting to rise in the air as some marauding group of people come towards you to take everything from you. Not just your possessions, but to take your freedom and maybe your life. And in that kind of, of world, in, the, in, in that kind of, of dangerous situation where all kinds of unexpected things might happen at any moment, I think we can at least begin to understand why they might be tempted to listen to any voice that promised to protect and provide for them. No matter where it came from, no matter who it came from, if there was a shot that this was one more angle that they could take, if this was one more aspect of their life that they could, could make sure was, was going to be protected, that was, was going to be okay, then, then they were going to try it. And I really believe as we read the book of Exodus, as we read the relationship that develops between God and God's people, that there was a part of them, there was always a part of them that really wanted to figure out how they were going to trust in God and God alone. The God that they knew by the name Yahweh, among all the other gods that were available to them. They really wanted that, but there was a part of them, because of everything they were fighting against all the time, they were just really afraid to choose one God among all of the options, because what if they chose wrong? Or what if in choosing Yahweh, all the other gods started trying to attack them and take away all the goodness in their lives? And so they struggle with choosing just one. And even when they choose just one God, they struggle with keeping that promise and that commitment. Now, running scared about the way the world is and wanting to keep all of the options open... That doesn't sound like something that only happened a long time ago. Those are feelings I think you and I can relate to. Running scared and wanting to keep all of our options open. And if we know what it, it means to feel the way those ancient Israelites must have felt, then it means, brothers and sisters, that you and I just might fall into the same mistakes that they made. It turns out idolatry in the end isn't really about kneeling in front of golden statues in ancient temples with rival teams of priests. It's not just about praying to a God who happens to go by a name other than Yahweh. It turns out that idolatry is driven less by the, the presence of a divided heart or a confused heart and more by the absence of understanding that we really do only have one choice to make. That if we're really going to believe in our God, this God who delivers us and saves us, has delivered and has saved us, promises us that, that he will always deliver and save us, that if that kind of relationship's really going to mean anything, 
it has to be exclusive. That while we have emotions where we want to to try to, to cover all the bases and keep all of our options open, it's that impulse precisely that led the Israelites to bowing down to other gods. Idolatry is what we practice and participate in every time we trust in someone or something other than the true God to give us what we want the most and protect us from what we fear the worst. That's what idolatry is. Now think about what goes on in your own heart, in your own mind, when you're really scared or nervous about something that's unfolding in your life or unfolding in our world. Who do you reach for? What do you reach for? Where do you place your alliance when you're really frustrated? I mean, you're just filled with rage at what's going on in your life and you'd give anything for it to change, for things to get better. What kind of life do you really believe is going to take you exactly where you want to get in this life? Those are just three major different kinds of situations where we are driven by different motivations, right? where we're driven by anxiety or anger or ambition. And if we're not careful, we let those things that motivate us cause us to do things and say things that have absolutely nothing to do with our commitment to trusting in God, our God, alone. I find that when I'm in one of those moments where I'm really anxious or I'm really angry or I'm struggling with my ambition, that what I tend to place my trust in is my own abilities to handle whatever it is that's going on. Right? I've been here before. I've had similar struggles before. I've faced similar obstacles before. I kind of know how this is going to go. I just need to think about it a little bit. I need to strategize. I need to talk to the right people. I need to get everything lined up, and then I'll be able to get through whatever it is that I'm scared of. I'll be able to stop allowing somebody else to impact my life in a way that's making me angry or feel small and and helpless in a situation that they've created or I feel like they've created and I want to somehow overcome it or stop it or shut it down. Or there's just times when I look at how things are going in my life and I think I really just want to improve it. I want to make it better. And so what books do I need to read and what kinds of conversations do I need to have and who do I need to imitate in order to get where I want to go? And if it's not my own abilities, then I start to rely and trust in the abilities of others. You know, I I think about Lauren and our marriage, our family life with Riley and Reese. And I choose to believe, I trust that no matter what happens, what kinds of obstacles we face, that those obstacles, we we would receive them in such a way that we're so competent and on top of everything that we would never allow those things to tear us apart that our struggles would only strengthen the bonds that hold us together. You may struggle in your marriage, but we won't. Right? Your family may struggle, but we won't, because there's a book, surely. There's a training seminar we can go to. There's something we can do to avoid it. And then if it's larger than my family, I start to be tempted to to really place my trust in other people who I I know are capable, and I know that they're they're trying to be helpful, and so I'm going to trust them. So I I trust our military to be able to keep all of us safe in, in our nation, and I trust police to be able to keep all of us safe in our cities, and I trust all of our teachers to be able to teach my children everything they need to know. The list goes on and on. And what I'm just trying to do is to get you to understand how easy it is for us to place our trust in people and things other than God. 
to place our trust in people and things instead of God. Now, I think part of it is we have this whole list in our life that for whatever reason we have decided it's really not spiritual. We, we, we categorize our lives, right? Where our worship time is spiritual and our prayer time is spiritual and our family devotionals are spiritual and, and Sunday school is spiritual and, and chapel is spiritual and the list goes on and on. But then all this other stuff that we're involved in in our lives, our jobs and, and books that we read and, and strategies that we develop, we, we don't see those things as spiritual, and once we decide something's not actually a part of our spiritual lives, we can, we can just disinvite God from being involved. And we place our trust in other things and in other people to help us with all these non-spiritual things. But if there's anything that God claims from the very beginning, it's that every second of your life is spiritual. Every second of your life has to do with your relationship with God. Every moment, every decision, every experience you have unfolds in God's sacred presence. That truth, that foundation, is where the first and the second commandments flow from. If every moment, if every second of your life is a part of your spiritual life, if all of your life is your spiritual life, then doesn't it make sense that the starting place for the raw ingredients that would make for a good life, not just for you, but for everyone around you, is for God, our God, and God alone to be what and who you place your trust in? Now, that's difficult. It's hard. It's hard for me. And I think part of, of what gets all this mixed up for us is how we, I think, unintentionally and at times subconsciously, we redefine wants into needs. Right? We, we do this. As Christians, I think we know to place, you know, if, if we believe that everything that's in our life is something that, that God has has blessed us with every good thing in our life is something that God has given us. And, and every difficult thing we face in our life, God is there with us, helping us get through those difficult moments. Then I think at some basic level, we would agree pretty easily that we place our trust in God for our basic needs. The things that make life possible. Okay, where it starts to get a little blurry is the things that we think will make life enjoyable. Now, things that make life possible are needs. Things that make life enjoyable are wants. And while we trust for God to meet our needs, I think we know from experience that God doesn't promise to meet every single one of our wants. But you and I really struggle to admit what's a need and what's a want. And suddenly we need a smartphone and we need Wi-Fi and we need a certain kind of car, and we need to live in a certain kind of neighborhood, and we need, and we need, and we need, and we're going to place our trust somewhere to get those supposed needs. And very often in our lives, the place, the people that we choose our trust, to, to trust, right, the, the, the things that we place our trust in, it's not God. It's something else. 
And yet all of those things that we end up accidentally placing our trust in to get us stuff that we're desperate to get, none of it's capable of making our life the kind of life we were created to have. None of it. I don't care what job you have. I don't care how much you enjoy it. Your job is not enough to make your life worth living. It just isn't. And if you don't happen to work an eight to five job, five days a week, all of us have certain accomplishments that we've either achieved or we're desperately trying to achieve. And we tell ourselves, if we can just get there, right? If we can have the perfect family, if, if nothing goes wrong in our home, if, if we're able to, to look like the, the perfect people to the, the people around us, the, the, we, we can come up with all kinds of achievements, right, that may or may not have to do with work. None of those things, achieving those things will make your life worth living. If you're married, your spouse cannot make your life worth living. We talk like that sometimes. There's lots of movies that we watch that tell us that romantic love is enough to make your life worth living. It's not. And those of us who are parents, who have children, I know how precious children are to their parents. I have two little girls. Our children cannot make our life worth living. Now, if you're uncomfortable with anything I just said, then like me, you're struggling with idolatry. Because we are constantly tempted to choose things other than God to say this is big enough. This is perfect enough. This is powerful enough to make my life worth living. And anything that we decide, it, it can handle that kind of, of pressure. It can handle that kind of stress. It can handle that kind of... It's not going to work. It never works. And yet we keep trying time after time. Anything that you chase after, as much as you chase after God is something that has replaced God in your life. Anyone that you love or cherish as much as you love or cherish God is someone who has replaced God in your soul. And in that moment, you are caught up in idolatry. I'm caught up in idolatry. It'd be so much easier if this was just a problem people had thousands of years ago. It'd be so much easier if idolatry could only happen if there were a statue and a temple and a priest. See, we live in a world where I think it's actually harder than it used to be to see it coming. To realize it's what's happening. When we try to put anything or anyone other than God in the place of our hearts that only God is capable, adequate to occupy our lives begin to drift because our lives are no longer about God and pursuing a relationship with God. Our lives begin to be about something else entirely. And not only do our lives begin to drift, they start to fall apart because the center can't hold. Nobody, nobody in your life can save you. And if you turn a relationship into something where a flawed 
normal, everyday human being is your only hope, you will have your heart shattered. Because it doesn't matter how hard you and I try to be there for each other, to to be good to each other, to be faithful to one another, we all make mistakes. We all come up short. We all do things and we say things that, that hurt each other and damage one another. The only one in your life who will never betray you, who will never let you down, who will never tell you one thing and then do another, the only one is God. We have to let God have that place in our lives and our hearts and let no one else take over. Let nothing else take over. We know this truth, but I think we seem to forget it. I think there's even times where if we're really going to be honest, we ignore it. You go back to Exodus 32 and you think, Why in the world would you decide that a metal baby cow saved you from the Egyptians? I mean, at least make a bull or something. And I think what's going on there is that the God Israel actually has scares them because he's too big and he's too powerful for them to order around and do exactly what they tell him to do. He's too big for them to fully understand. He's too complex for them to fully comprehend. And that scares them because they know that they can't manipulate him. They can't use him. They can't make him do what they want him to do like all the other gods are treated in the world around them. See, because idolatry is not just placing something else at the heart of your life. It's also reshaping God into a manageable size and shape that you can control. And this is even trickier than the other gods because you're still calling that false version of God, God. This is the God who took us out of Egypt. This is the God we have to thank. And it's a God we can lead around on a rope. Surely we relate to the temptation to reduce God to some heavenly genie who's at our beck and call. Who shows up when we pray to say, how can I help you? What can I do? You tell me what I should be doing and I'll listen. Now, what's amazing about the God of Israel is the God of Israel, the God that we have, wants to have prayerful conversations with us, wants to partner with us, wants to collaborate with us. But we had better never get confused about who's actually running things. It's God. And God alone. And so I I want us to think about this in the coming days of this week. And and I want you to wrestle with this because I don't always hear teachers and preachers put it this bluntly. There's always this sense that a a developing relationship with God will somehow, in some way, 
have, have these rewards that, that you can depend on, almost like an investment policy, right? That if you, you put this in, then you get this out. You reduce God, not so much to a genie, but maybe to almost like a, a slot machine, where if you line everything up just right, the jackpot has to pour out. So I, I just want to be clear to you. That may be the God that we want, but it's not the God that we have The God we have promises us one thing and one thing only, himself. That's it. God promises us one thing only, himself. His love, his presence, his peace, his joy, his kindness, his faithfulness. God promises us Not more and more stuff, not more and more getting our own way, not more and more power or influence. God promises us more and more God. And there's one thing that he wants in return. You. All of you. Not some of you. Not a piece of you, not a part of your heart, but all of you, all of your hope, all of your dreams, all of your ambition, all of your talents and gifts, all of your future, all of your family, all of your relationships, all of you. God offers us one thing himself, and God asks for one thing in return, you, me, us. And see, I think we really struggle with accepting that these are the terms of our relationship with God. And we want God to give us himself and a bunch of extra things that we're going to pray for and talk about and expect and get frustrated if God doesn't do exactly what we tell God to do in the time frame we tell God to do it. So we want God and then extra. Can you imagine how insulting that is to the creator of the universe? That he's not enough for you? It's God then plus something? And then how often do we even use religion itself to say, well, I I gave you an hour and a half, and I gave you some of my paycheck, and then I even gave some people in Harvey some of my paycheck, and and I'm going to sit through a Bible class, and that's enough, right? that's, That's enough, isn't it? If religion becomes a replacement for a full life lived, in the ongoing presence of God, then it's not only that you might be worshiping a counterfeit version of God, but you are offering God a counterfeit version of yourself. And there's nothing real in any of that. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make an image of anything else that you think is going to get you the kind of life that you desperately want that includes me, but is somehow more than me, God says. Am I enough? Is our relationship with God enough? Are we trying to use that relationship to get other things entirely? These are the first and second commandments. These are the things, the thoughts, the ideas that we need to wrestle with this week. And here's what I want you to do this week. I just want you to think of of whatever it is or whomever it is that threatens to be as important or more important than God in your life.
Who is it? What is it that competes for the place in your heart that only God really can call home? Find a way to confess that truth to God and ask for God's help in allowing him to once again be the true king of your life. It's not going to be easy, but I promise you, it'll be worth it. We're going to sing together now, and as we do, some of our shepherds and their wives will be waiting just outside of these double doors to pray with you, to talk with you, uh, to be Christian community for you. So whatever you came in this morning with, if you'd like to share that with a a Christian couple and pray, you want to know more about our church, more about what it means to, to be a Christian, please go to them as together we stand and sing.